Welcome to Sergeras Show in episode number 45. Super excited for this one. We are in 2020 and you are here because you want to learn how thought leaders in business and sports think. What is their psychological side of their success? I'm interviewing them to understand how, what makes them tick. What are their routines? What are their rituals? What are some of their principles and career decisions that led them to where they are right now? What have they learned? The purpose of that is to get to a specific tactics and steps that you can apply in your career to learn and get better. And with this episode, I had an opportunity to speak to Bob Langert, who is the former VP of sustainability at McDonald's. He used to work there for 32 years. Here's an episode. So my guest today has been leading McDonald's sustainability efforts for over 30 years. Uh, he was the first VP appointed uh, to lead sustainability by McDonald's in 2006. He's a TED speaker and uh, had an amazing talk, How to Defeat Your Toughest Critics, and recently wrote a book, The Battle to Do Good, which takes you behind the scenes of uh, McDonald's uh, sustainability, how they did recycling and repackaging. His name is Bob Langert. Bob, thank you so much for joining me here today. Well, I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. So you recently spoke on Twitter. You mentioned if I would start my career now, I would focus on influencing others. So obviously you spent so much time at McDonald's uh, leading the efforts and being in a leadership role. How could st someone start on that path to influence others? Yeah, that could be my next book I write because uh, when I spent 30 years trying to change things in McDonald's and work on all these issues that I wrestled with with the McDonald's system and our suppliers and, and the critics of suppliers, I found that in order to implement change, you have to have a high degree of influence. And as I reflect upon it, in my whole career, I go, what's the essence of having influence? I mean, it's a big art and there's many, many ingredients to it. But I think it starts with this idea of the biggest umbrella is that you have to develop trust and confidence in your relationships that you have. So I always thought the more mature I got and as I got older, I go, you know, to make change, you don't make change and then run to somebody and say, hey, let's change something out of the blue. You already, it, it just works tremendous dividends to already know people that they trust you, they know you, they know your motivations. So uh, developing relationships, developing trust, and there's all types of ways to develop trust. But to me, that's the, the key is, uh, and many people, I think they view their jobs as more functional and they go mm -hmm. to people when they need them. And I always try to uh, nurture relationships that people knew Bob Langer. When they came to Bob Langer, they knew that, that I would deliver I would always be there. I was an expert at, at what my job was. Uh, I would listen. I would respond. I would be honest. I mean, there's, these are some of the ingredients that go into developing trust. So then when I ask for a, a big thing a year from now, they don't question who I am and what my motivations are. They're ready to work with me. So you are being proactive. You reach out to people, you help them, uh, you deliver certain value without expecting something to, uh, you, you, you don't expect immediate gratification or immediate something back. Exactly. And uh, that's what I meant by kind of transactional relationships. Uh, I don't think they work that well. I run into people, you know, I'm very big on uh, networking and getting to know people. I mean, that's how you develop relationships. But a lot of people look at networking 
as as a uh, check the box exercise. Oh, I'm going to meet all these people so that when I need help, I can go to them. Well, no, I don't think exactly as you said it, you shouldn't look for any immediate return. Uh, it's just the idea that you're going to develop a relationship. And uh, you can dig into that. It's like developing a, a trust bank. You put things into it, into it, into it. And, you know, some of them, you don't do it for selfish reasons, but at the end of the day, it's amazing how you could build up the trust bank and use it when you do need to work with somebody. And by the way, that applies to both internal to the company and to the external critics. Uh, you, you need to get out there and listen to people that maybe don't think like you or think differently. And because for the outside world to believe you, I mean, normally they're not going to believe a corporate suit from McDonald's. So how do you develop trust from, from the people on the outside? So that's a little different type of question. Right. I know if somebody is starting out building their relationships, what do they do? Do they start with something they really, really enjoy and ask questions like, oh, let me go and help these types of people in this industry. And then um, starting maybe their work environment and then maybe doing certain projects extra outside of that. Would that be would that be something where they start? Yes, I would say, you know, raise your hand. Uh, go through the extra effort. When you go to events, stay there longer, be the last one to leave. Uh, mill around and, and, and talk and just ask questions. It's amazing as I have gotten older, I realize that people with experience want to share it with younger people. I mean, most of us, hey, if we've been successful, we would love to help people. And we're actually looking at it. It may be, maybe it feeds our ego, I don't know. But, you know, hey, if, if we have some form of success, nothing better than passing along. So why not meet with a, a top executive? Hey, if you're interested in things, set up a meeting with that person. I bet you're not going to be turned down. But make sure your motivations are sincere. You know, people can see through somebody that just wants to do it as an um, exercise versus a sincere interest right. in whatever they want to talk about. Totally. And you speak about, I think it was somewhere on LinkedIn that you mentioned that about small wins and starting with small wins and then going with that. Was this your mindset when you joined the company back in the 80s or you have developed that over time? You realized we actually can't make the change tomorrow. We need to start with making a small thing happen and then building on that. Definitely. I mean, a lot of my job on uh, sustainability was creating new things for the company. And as you know, anytime, uh, I mean, you get into this change management, it's not even about sustainability. But if you're going to create a waste reduction program that the company's never had before, if you're going to do an animal welfare program that the company's never done before, or if you're going to go to the Amazon and work with Greenpeace, all these things have never been done before. So how do you, how do you start working on them? And uh, yeah, I mean, I, to me, you start by just opening a, a dialogue and getting an understanding because uh, too many leaders want to get stuff done too quickly. I mean, I know we're in a day and age where quickness counts, 
But when you're trying to change, I mean, McDonald's had 1.7 million people working for it. And then imagine our supplier network. Absolutely. Imagine serving, by the way, 70 million customers. So, you know, when you make a change and that's per, day. Mag per day. So when you make a change in the McDonald's system, as I would be trying to do, these things have to be uh, taken very step by step. So I always had this uh, way of thinking. Uh, I call it the three P's. And when you think of having passion, patience, and persistence all at once. Uh, so start thinking about that. If you think about it, it's almost like you're schizophrenic because they, they, they fight each other. However, I believe that's what you have to do. Mm -hmm. So to implement change, you have to be patient because you have to get other people to come along. And you can't force that to happen. You have to engage. You have to listen. They, you can't ram change down their throats. So you got to bring them on in. You want your goal should be that they want to change. That's how. See, I'm influencing not by mandate, but I'm influencing by informing them, motivating, so that they want to get involved. How but, do you, uh, Bob? Sorry. Uh, how do you make sure? And we are in the day and age where there's instant gratification. Uh, and people want to see the results immediately, but you as a leader know it will not happen right away. How do you make sure that you lead your team through that? They are still getting, they are still motivated. Well, that is a great question because that was the number one complaint I had from my team. So often they would come back to me, they'd be frustrated, they'd go to a meeting, you know, people would say, no, there'd be some sort of problem. You know, we had many steps where we would take a step backwards. And then we would take another step backwards. And then, but I would always get, really try to tell my team that yes, here's a step backwards and we've taken two steps backwards, but look at the last six months. We've taken four steps forward at the same time. So this is a, a game of uh, what I was involved, I, you know, sort of like a game of inches and chess where sometimes you sacrifice something to move forward. You have to, uh, let people say no and come back at a different opportunity to get a, a yes. And if people are in it for the longer term, you do get a sense of satisfaction. But the, what I was involved in on sustainability, you're not going to change animal welfare around the world in uh, six months. It's going to take three, four, five years. And that's, by the way, what it took. So if you're not willing to do that, this type of work's not for you. <laughs> yeah. Certainly. And you said, uh, you talked about uh, like conflict is the opportunity and uh, the fact that uh, persistence is something that you absolutely need to do. And especially with how you defeat your critics and, you know, working with Greenpeace, uh, working with other organizations that you have to face, that doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, you have to be persistent because, you know, patience you know, if you do, if all you have is patience, you'll never get anything done. So, you know, I always came into work every day with the big two or three things I want to move along. And sometimes it was just one thing. I was working on the idea of sustainable beef for a good year or two. Uh, I helped develop our nutrition policy way back then. You know, maybe that's a humorous <laughs> note for you. <laughs> but believe it or not, we took nutrition mm -hmm. you know, seriously. I, I created, you know, anim animal welfare programs. And uh, you just have to come into work because there are a lot of barriers. There are a lot of challenges. And, and by the way, they're 
natural barriers. I mean, businesses are busy, people are frenetic, everybody that you're working with is maxed out. I mean, today more than ever, people are busy. So you know, why, if I'm going to come to them with a proposal to work at animal welfare, it's going to make their life, you know, busier. Yeah. They better want to get on board themselves because I want them to work on, on this. So you have to be persistent to, to kind of move these things along, work with the internal stakeholders, work with external stakeholders who, you know, that you, you have to work with your critics you know, almost by definition because if you come up with a solution in a company that the critics don't like, what good has it done you? So, okay. you know, conflict, you, you mentioned conflict. I go, conflict's mm -hmm. wonderful. I don't know, I'm into sports, I play tennis, I play, I'm into pickleball now. I'm like, I want to play the people that are tough to play, the people that are, you know, winners. And how am I going to beat them? Now, I don't, I don't look at beating other people in a, in a negative sense, but if I want to get sustainable fish for the company, if I want to have sustainable potatoes, I look at it in a way, you know, I wrote the book, you know, my book is called The Battle to Do Good. And this idea of the battle to do good, it's not a negative term that it's a battle. It's a positive term. You go out there, like when I have a tennis match, I want to know everything about my opponent, and I'm going to go out there and figure out how to win. Well, the same thing in the business context. But in this way, you, you sort of you do it with persistence, but collaboration as well. Because you know, the job I had is you, you have a lot of responsibility to lead the company to do good things, but you have to influence everybody else. I'm not really a decision maker. You have to get the, the head of supply chain, the head of operations, the head of marketing. They have to say yes. So, uh, you know, those things, you got to work hard at getting that. Talk to me about goal setting, because I think this is also really interesting. You touched on it a little bit. You said, uh, I would be working on beef sustainability or a beef project for a year or two. How would you approach that? Do you set a goal? How do you set the timeline? How do you make sure your team has certain milestones? What was your thinking behind that? The, uh, in order to be, have any credibility in the, in the world of corporate sustainability, you do need to set some uh, goals and objectives. You know, what, are you, what do you stand for? And by the way, hopefully you're working on the things that are most important. So that's where you start. You right. start with the idea, and that's kind of what my job was. Okay, what's the most important thing a company, like McDonald's in our case, can do to help society and help our business grow at the same time? And that's my def definition of what corporate sustainability is, doing good for the world and it's helping the business grow at the same time. So uh, when you go through those screens, and I would work very collaboratively. I mean, for sustainable beef, I might be working with 100 people to, believe it or not, to establish wow. what, that goal, what that goal is. So in a big system, you need to have a big tent to bring in. And uh, it, it, might, it probably took us over a year to develop that goal. But my goodness, once we develop it and it's agreed upon, it's a very powerful thing. Uh, to develop a goal kind of single-handedly and dictatorially, I think it's, it's actually not sustainable. So you want to work on what's most important. And we always thought that uh, beef. We had a great meeting. One of the best things that ever happened in my career is our CEO spent a half day at our top 40 people meet every year. He said, Bob, I want a whole morning of a day and a half meeting. So this is a pretty big chunk of time. He says, I want you to put sustainability in front of us. It's now in the C-suite. This is back in about 2010. 
I go, wow, what am I going to do with four hours? So what I decided to do is I brought the outside world in. I didn't want them to hear from Bob Langard or my team. They hear enough of me. I brought in Greenpeace. I brought in the World Wildlife Fund. I brought in you know, other big NGOs. I brought in other leaders in corporate sustainability like Coca-Cola and Unilever. Right. And it was a mind-blowing exercise for our executives to hear from the outside world the reality of this. And by the way, the opportunity of this. You know, most people view in the past that all these issues are companies trying to stay out of trouble. They're just doing it to be reactive. Nowadays, the better companies are reading the tea leaves and saying, hey, if we're going to be responsible, I mean, isn't, if you're a successful company, society needs to like you. Yes. Uh, and your business, they can go together. So that's what we converted to at McDonald's. And uh, again, that ties back to the, to the goal setting. And you're doing internal marketing, Bob. Like if you, you mentioned something super important, if you would show up in that meeting, you obviously were leading those meetings many times. Uh, everybody knows what you're doing, what you're, like what, what's your priorities are. When the, the C-suite hears the stories of Greenpeace, they hear the stories of other organizations, that's the best internal marketing for your team, for the team at McDonald's to say, this is what we actually have to do because of this. And this is much more powerful than if you just throw the stats on the slide, isn't it? You, you hit the nail on the head. And as a matter of fact, now I have to say, uh, I helped orchestrate this uh, independent panel. So we had all these experts in from outside the company and I had an independent moderator. The independent moderator asked us one question that was really uh, a game changer for McDonald's. And what he asked these eight different leaders was, if you were CEO for McDonald's for one day and had to make one decision that would change the world and help the company prosper, what would that one thing be? Seven of the eight spoke about the need for McDonald's to address beef. Beef is a big societal issue. As we all know, it has lots of impact, nutrition, environmental, climate change, etc. Beef is what McDonald's is known for. Yes. Maybe this plant-based maybe this plant -based beef will take over the world in the future, but for right now, it is beef and, and chicken. It's what the brand almost stands for. McDonald's, do something about this. That's what those people said. Well, right. I've been saying stuff like that internally for a year, you know, in one ear, one out the other, sort of. Yeah. But when they hear it from the outside world, that that's, and then when they hear, because, you know, we're so used to getting beat up. You know, companies get beat up. They get criticized, whether it's through the media, NGOs. And I have to say, I wish companies had thicker skin. I mean, my goodness. I mean, we would have articles written about us that I thought were 80% positive and maybe 20% negative. And all the executives would say, it's a negative article. Well, they got to put something negative in there. But these NGOs would say, so our, one of our top execs asked, uh, so if we do this program on sustainable beef and we do a pretty good job at it, would you actually say words of support for us? And they said, we sure we would. We would actually support you. And they were like shocked. <laughs> like, you're not going to be our enemy? No. We're, so, you know, we can get on the same page. We can work together. It's amazing. It's, uh, it's really the power of, um, of real marketing. Uh, the power of having thought leaders in one place that actually can make a change and impact those 70 million customers a day and impact uh, organizations like Greenpeace and actually impact the Amazon, which we will touch on. I uh, have questions around that because I know it's a big part of your career, uh, but that is super interesting. Bob, in terms of making decisions, 
uh, when you have, uh, how do you find the balance between a sound business decision decision versus a decision that is, you know, is the right thing in your heart? Like, how do you strike that right balance uh, from your experience? Well, that's a tough question. Uh, it kind of reminds me. Uh, well, one is I felt my responsibility was to get all the right information in front of the executives to make a good decision. So I think if I, if I do that and get all the pros and cons and the, and the business says, hey, we don't want to do this now for whatever reason, I halfway feel good uh, because at least I've got it vetted you know, for top management. Uh, I, I would uh, struggle sometimes. I mean, you are a business and you get into the issue of like how much to pay people, you know, which is a big issue for McDonald's. So it's like, well, hey, we're, we're a beginning place for people to work and people work on a lower wage thing. Now you could work at McDonald's and end up being a manager, be a, an operations director. And by the way, there's lots of very successful people that worked their way through the McDonald's system. But, you know, what should we be paying people? Uh, you know, these are issues that are very tough and complex. And doing the right thing uh, across the board is complex. The whole issue, uh, I'll take cage-free eggs, for example. Everybody mm -hmm. thinks cage-free eggs are wonderful and i'm not even sure if you know what cage-free eggs i'm not are. no so please explain for if we're well, some of our listeners most people think cage-free eggs are these these uh hens are in some pastoral setting very happy you know laying eggs and uh no they're not cage-free eggs come from a big facility uh you know the birds are thousands of birds in a, a barn you know, cranking out eggs. By the way, in a cage-free facility, they're they're kind of all over the place, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure if the American public, when they actually if they actually visited a place, it it can be perceived as being uh, not hygienic, if you know what I mean. Right. You know, versus the traditional uh, uh, places that have eggs. You know, they they, they kind of come through. They're in cages. The birds are are in cages, and a lot of people think that's inhumane. Anyway, so to study that issue, yeah. I love studying what the right thing to do is, because when it comes to sustainability, there's hardly any choice that scores an A across the board, because sustainability is a holistic issue. It's not just the environment, it's the environment, it's the treatment of animals, it's how people are treated, it's the uh, safety factors, it's the sanitation factors. I mean, nothing more important than health. It's the economic factors. So economic factors, when it, it's people, planet, profit. So I'm not bashful about telling people, external stakeholders, that we decided not to do something because it wasn't economical, because that's, by definition, that's part of being sustainable. Mm -hmm. Usually you can find enough things to work on that are good for society, good for business, right. and that will keep you busy. Find that balance. Yeah, yeah. I want to touch on the McLeibel trial. It was in 1995. And McLeibel. McLeibel no, trial in the UK. You testified in 95. Um, tell us quickly what it was and was that the Kickstarter of a lot of the change that your team implemented? Well, I always remember when the internet started in terms of it being a global force because it was around 1995 when this McLeibel trial started, because before that, there was no opportunity for a single person, in this case, 
two people that were part of a fringe group called London Greenpeace. So two people, through the power of the internet, created a campaign called McSpotlight. And basically, they were passing out leaflets throughout the United Kingdom, denigrating everything McDonald's was doing. They were saying we were polluting the world, destroying the rainforest, mistreating animals, and the list was two pages long. So our company, you know, in my opinion, made one of the biggest blunders ever. We sued them. So we went to court at the Royal Courts of Justice. I was one of the very first people to testify in 1995. And this trial went on for three or four years. It was the longest libel trial in British history and the most expensive. And we may have won the legal verdict, but we kind of lost the battle uh, because right. uh, our whole company was under scrutiny every day because everything was on the internet. People were saying uh, on trial, oh, you know, Coca-Cola is, you know, a good healthy drink. Well, it's, it's not, a, I mean, it's, it's something you can have, but it's it's not like it's healthy or anything like that. So, I mean, it's like it's like if somebody were following you around for three years, yeah. you're 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 probably a flawed human being as I am, and they would see all these flaws as they saw in our company. So, uh, it really brought forth for us a lot of changes on animal welfare because a lot of the scrutiny was on animal welfare, and this whole idea of being transparent and open. Mm -hmm. I, to me, that's been such a huge dynamic it's, to me that's the biggest change that's forged a lot of corporate behavior since then because you can't hide anything anymore everything's so visible and by the way companies today are still not used to this idea of being transparent and open i mean you see it every day when you, you read what's happening companies hunker down still totally. they they deny they push off i'm like why are you doing this i mean because everybody I mean, all the research shows that you have to be open and transparent in everything you do. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be like 100% open. I mean, uh, yeah, but it does so attract. It does attract what you don't want. I always so in terms of what I did, there's I had to be to do my job internally, externally, 100% open and honest. Because the uh, the last thing in, in the job I had. People had to, I, we started our discussion with the idea of having trust. Trust right. is, by the way, trust is sharing things that are good and bad. And being a representative of the company, are you going to believe me if I only tell you good things? No, you're not going <laughs> to believe a word I say. But if you say, if I say, you know what, we can't sell salads. We're selling six a day in a restaurant. We're trying hard, but we can't sell them. By the way, that's a truthful statement. What's wrong with saying that and sharing that? Because we're struggling. We're trying to sell more healthy food, but people aren't buying it. But companies just want to uh, lay low and uh, you know not communicate this stuff. So that's why this whole sustainability movement, I believe, is, it's one of the biggest movements going on in companies today. But it's mm -hmm. it's a little bit on the down low because companies in general don't talk a lot about it. I mean, most big companies have sustainability staffs and officers and goals and reports and so on. Well, uh, let's touch on the recycling part because I know you did a lot on the recycling end and uh, I had a recently heard this fascinating conversation. It was on Tim Ferriss' podcast. He was interviewing uh, Tony Fadel, uh, Tony Fidel, 
uh, he created iPod and uh, created Nest, the famous thermostat, and he started looking at recycling process. So what he said was that uh, you can't actually recycle the plastic more than once or twice, and the, all the recycling is either, um, it's either burned or it's either buried. And so it's a, it's a huge problem. I was curious to hear your opinion or your thoughts on that, or if you had a chance to dig into the, the actual details of, of the Specific recycling. of, of plastic recycling in particular? Plastic Is recycling. Well, I don't think I'm up to date in general on plastic recycling, but uh, it's part of my history to deal with that. And yeah, it, it has a limited life. And uh, it, it is interesting. I went through a whole anti-plastics uh, cycle back in around 1990 and, and today it, it's, it seems like it's resurrected itself so it's, to me it's like deja vu all over again what i can say is this at a macro level it's very disappointing to see the lack of progress on recycling you know recycling uh, came of age in the late 80s early 90s and uh, all the curbside recycling programs happened at that time and that's when i started all my work and it was very exciting and you know within three to five years around 1990-ish, one-third of the country was, you know, recycling. And, you know, the recycling rates were re reaching around you know, maybe 25, 30 percent for different types of items, paper-based, even plastic-based. But I would say that's been stagnant for ever since. Uh, so it's been very disappointing that there haven't been solutions for it and innovators in the space. Uh, and I think uh, I lay most of the blame on the fact that uh, getting rid of trash is still so cheap. I mean, we, right. we uh, McDonald's first got in trouble in, back in 1990 for having too much trash. And there was a big campaign that uh, the world in the United States was gonna run out of landfill space. Now, it's, maybe it's hard for you to believe this, but that's what was going on at that time. Believe me, headlines, news stories, we're mm -hmm. running out of landfills. Uh, well. It ended up not being the case, and there's plenty of landfill space, and people are paying almost as much today to get rid of trash as they were 30 years ago. So there's not an economic, that's got to change for some of these things, because as soon as it gets too expensive to get rid of stuff, you're going to see lots of solutions for plastics and Yeah, there's items. not enough pull to find a solution. Yeah, landfilling and getting rid of garbage is still too too economical, unfortunately. I want to speak a little bit on a, a personal end of things uh, for you with, with you, Bob. Are there any skills that you are personally focused on developing right now? You did mention tennis. Uh, anything that you are working on, a professionally or personally? Well, I mean, uh, you're asking what I need to work on. I mean, uh, I, I. I probably, uh, for a long time now, I, I've, I have on my desk here the sign that says, be here now, be here now. And uh, I find it's my best thing to uh, get me doing the things that I need to be doing the right way. Uh, because when I'm not being the Bob Langert that I want to be, uh, I'm not listening to you. I'm not here for you now. I'm thinking 10 steps ahead of you. I mean, I like to think about all this. I mean, I have what I think is a creative mind and I'm jumping ahead and all these things are not good when I'm interacting with you or a teammate or a partner, you know, who uh, I find that listening skills in all of my career uh, in observing other leaders and even assessing myself is not 
the best skill that I have. So therefore, but I think it is one of the best skills we should have. Listening and combined with uh, empathy, uh, having the empathy to understand at a, at a deeper level what this means. Because once you understand it, you can come back with uh, ways to develop that relationship and develop solutions. Well, you recently did a talk on TED. What was the experience like? I think I read it somewhere. You, you mentioned it was terrifying. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, when you go on TED and you might be forever on video for all time, it's uh, nerve-wracking. They asked me to do things that I'm not used to doing. So I've, I've spoken in public lots, and I represented the company a lot, and I've given a lot of talks. But I've never, like, came up with a script that they wanted me to follow word by word. I mean, I had 14 minutes of time, and they talked to me about every word that I developed and mm -hmm. every paragraph. And, and they have a reason for doing this, and I'll call it a formula. They don't like me saying it's a formula, but they have a, they have a good formula for success for what makes a good TED Talk. And I trusted them in that, but I go, how am I supposed to sort of memorize a talk? And then, then they would say, Bob, we want you to be very sincere, very natural. I'm like, how does this happen? I've never known that to happen. Uh, and when I was practicing my talk in front of my family, they said, you're, 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 not, you're not who we think, you're, you're, you're robotic. You're not delivering it like the way that we know you, who you are. So I struggled with that over a couple month period. And it wasn't until I actually, I was, when I actually walked on the stage, the night before, my wife critiqued me in the hotel. She said, Bob, you're hyperventilating in your talk. You're talking too fast. You're heavy breathing. You know, you can't do this. You're, I, I don't even understand you. This is the night before because I wanted to get it down to 14 minutes. And every time I ad-libbed, I would add 30 seconds or I'd add a minute. So I couldn't add So precise. <laughs> exactly. So that's why you had to be precise. But you'd have to watch it to uh, make your own judgment. But when I finally got on the stage, I actually finally relaxed. And I felt like I was who I was. And I felt good about my message. Because I, I have a lot of passion around sustainability. And you know, we worked with critics for so long. And I think in this day and age, the message I was trying to deliver, I mean, I was all in on this idea that why not look at your critics as a solution to improve your business? I mean, without, we talked before in our conversation, yeah. without some sort of tension and conflict, how are you ever going to get better? You, you have to have some tension. So look at these critics, and most critics want to help you out. Right. They're, not, they're not critics that want to wreck your business. I'd say 80 to 90% of them, given the opportunity, would actually want to help you out to be successful. Now, there are going to be, you know, one out of 10 that want to knock you down and destroy you, and I can tell you stories about that as well. But... You know, why dictate your decisions by the one out of 10? I always thought, let's assume good intentions, assume innocence in the people out there until they prove me wrong. <laughs> so ask a question, how this person is trying to help me try to force yourself to look at it in a different light when you hear the critics. Well, it's not only forcing yourself, there's no way that we within, we have blind, we have to recognize that in the company we have natural blinders on blinders. I mean, even I did. I mean, so you 
you live in a, a fishbowl, you're in McDonald's, I go into work every day, I'm surrounded by McDonald's. So, you know, my role was not to be in a fishbowl. So I had to bring in the outside worlds and try to understand that. But almost by definition, you're going to bring people that are going to make you uncomfortable. Because, you know, isn't life simpler if you don't change your business? I mean, it's just... Yes. It's just a lot simpler if you don't have to change anything. Uh, on the other hand, you, you want people to, I mean, McDonald's, our brand, our, we call it our brand health, was just so important. And by the way, all these issues of how we treat society were at about, they're about half the uh, components that make up brand health. I mean, some of brand health is convenience and taste and cost and clean bathrooms. Those are like functional attributes of a, a brand. But most you of the- You have 35 uh, of them, aren't you? You have like 35 or more, maybe now more. You must have read my book because that's in my book. Uh, we had about 40 attributes of brand health. So about 20 of them were uh, long-term. So that's the other secret here is that the, uh, the functional attributes of brand health are usually short-term. You can accomplish them quickly. Hey, if you want to change the price, if you want to get the bathrooms cleaner, if you want to run things faster, if you want to build more, all these things are fairly quick to do and you get, you get good payoffs. Long-term brand health, like how you treat your people, how you treat the environment, are you ethical, what's your supply chain like, do you treat animals well, all those issues, to change them and to get people to believe in that change is our research shows that it took maybe three to five years. And by the way, the payoff is there. Our market research people said for every 1% increase of brand health, we get 2% more sales, which makes sense. Why would yep. people care about brand unless it helps your business? But it, it doesn't pay off for the first year or two. And most companies, including McDonald's, we weren't you know that willing. We wanted more of the short-term payoff versus the long-term. Everybody wants a short-term payoff. I'm a marketer. No, but very, very, very few people want to invest in brand. Everybody wants Google ads. Everybody wants the dashboards. All should be tra tracked, all the clicks. But sometimes if we speak on, the, on this podcast and you say, oh, I really love this product or I really loved what you did in XYZ, that will never get tracked. And that's the real interest. That is the real marketing. And unfortunately, that can only be captured when you speak to people either directly or you speak to people on video. And those are one of the aspects that brand, um, it's how brand is evaluated, but not it's not really, it's hard to put it down onto a spreadsheet. So I think this is one of the major flaws with most companies is that their their brand management is is uh, managed in, in, in a short-term you know basis and uh, you know these companies it's like why would they do this they, they know that to be a successful company and you're going to be around for another 5 10 20 years you you need to invest in the brand not just in uh, uh, commercials that you know promote some sort of you know 99 cent drink tomorrow you yeah. know which yeah it does bring in people so yeah i think there should be a better mix of that uh bob i think we mentioned influence you did mention building relationships all very important especially for people who are starting out their careers but if you were uh, 20 years old right now you're starting out let's say mcdonald's you're managing the truck drivers what would you tell to yourself as to how to what, how to... How to, it could be anything. It could be professional. It could be more personal. Uh, this is what 
I should be doing, or if I knew this, then I would do, this is what I would, actions I would take. You know, I, I would, I would advise a young person to uh, get engaged with uh, the organization, get very involved, uh, volunteer for teams and committees, uh, sh uh, be very be visible be visible in a way that uh, I was always critical of any team or staff that he'd be somewhere and they like they wouldn't say anything hey you're not here to be wallpaper you know you're here to you know I, I want something from you all the time be willing so to he, fail yes even if it's I don't know even, people would feel bad if their idea is put down but it's better to present some sort of thought so even if you're 20 years old in a meeting, raise your hand and give your thought. Because a lot of times, okay, people may not agree. Don't be afraid that people will not like your idea. Uh, because a lot of, who knows if they will or not. They'll admire you for doing that. There's a lot of strong people in business. Uh, and what I learned is that too many people play it safe. They're, they're uh, not risk takers. Uh, you know, executives, they get to, the, they get to where they're at because they're strong, they're confident, they have an opinion. And so when they run a meeting, that's just the way they are. Now, one of the biggest problems we had at McDonald's, the, the worst question that we had on our commitment survey of people was this question. Can I speak openly and honestly to the you know, top management team? And only 50% of the people, 5-0, felt they could speak openly and honestly. And we compared ourselves to 20 other big Fortune 500 companies, they had the same scores, by the way. So it wasn't just a McDonald's issue. And can you imagine going to work and you do not speak, like you don't give all of yourself? I always did. And I always go, why don't people do that? So that would be my advice, starting early on, get involved, you know, say stuff, give your opinion. Uh, and people, and as you, as you learn more, you're going to be able to have even better opinions. I mean, I would hear often younger people say, well, I give an opinion, nobody listens to me. And why do they listen to you? You say the same thing as I say. Well, I, I understand all that, but you got to practice. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so get involved, present your point of view, ask good questions. That's the other thing that I think is really cool is one way to present a point of view, sort of, is to ask a question. This way, you're not being confrontational. Why is it that we do this this way? You get it to gives, the outcome you want to get to. So you can you can kind of challenge something very quietly by just asking a question. That's a trick I learned kind of from somebody that I liked a lot when early in my career. So in a lot of meetings, that's what I would do. If I didn't like something, usually I wouldn't say I didn't like it. Because, you know, people don't like you disagreeing in a meeting. It's, it's probably not the best thing to do to win friends. But you could ask a question. You know, let me explain that more. I don't understand, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. yeah. Bob, are there any books that you gifted the most or that you kept coming back to over the last couple of years that jump out? The yeah, I liked the books that jump out to me is uh, I'm a somewhat of a student of history. So mm -hmm. I love reading. So it's not one book, but it would be a genre. It would be the genre of reading about the best leaders that have been around. And uh, when I read The uh, <laughs> the Last Lion 
uh, about Winston Churchill and how mm. he conducted himself during the war, how I read about FDR during World War II, and I read about Abe Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln during, World, during the Civil War. I mean, re read the, the guy that wrote Hamilton, his name is escaping me, he wrote the book about George Washington. When I finished reading his book on George Washington, I thought the s subtitle should have been The Art of Being a Great Leader. Mm. So, uh, for for your show, I mean, that was, that was always motivating to me is trying to figure out, I always wanted to be yeah. a good leader. And uh, by the way, early on in my career, I, I worked for Baxter Travenal, uh, hospital to hospital supply company. And I went up for a promotion. I got denied. The, I was one of the last people left, but they didn't hire me for this promotion. I asked the head of HR why I didn't get it. And they said, well, we see you more as a, a follower, a good follower, not a leader. <laughs> and at the time, I was probably 25 years old. And uh, it really stuck with me. I mean, I think about it almost still every day. I shared it with you just now because it's very yeah. motivating for me to figure, okay, if I'm not a, if they didn't see me as a good leader, how can I become a good leader? And I think that's what I enjoyed reading about. My go-to would be to be reading the, uh, one of my favorite historians is uh, David McCulloch. Do you know David McCullough? You wrote no, John I, Adams. I love history. Haven't had a chance to read him. So he's great. And so, for instance, he wrote the book The Wright Brothers about the, mm -hmm. the guys who invented the airplane. I mean, this book was a, a page turner about these two guys. You know, they're kind of quirky and kind of quacky. And it's so motivating, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you realize that they, they're plane designs, they probably destroyed them 20,000 times in all their oh, trials. And they, you know what they would do? They would get mm -hmm. up the next morning, as happy as could be, going at it again. It's it totally reminds uh, me of Edison. <laughs> Edison uh, he was doing a nine thousand five hundred five hundred experiment, his, and he created a mini explosion. And his assistant said, "Why are we wasting our time? We have another failure." And Edison had a great response. He said, "This is not a failure. This is another way why it didn't work, but we could be useful for something else." Well, there you go. For instance, reading about FDR and Winston Churchill during World War II. Now, a lot of people in business. So when I read about them, I go, you know what? FDR always had his one hour or one and a half hour, his little cocktail thing, like around six o'clock. He would go some friends and they have some drinks and just kind of talk about stuff. He was relaxing. Winston Churchill would disappear on some trips and just relax somewhere. I go, if these people running a world war can find time to relax. And I remember reading in the book step that one step, they're able to step back. So I think that's an important part because, you know, I know people and I've seen some of your podcasts, you know, people are all in and they work all the time and it's 24 seven. And, and I've, you know, I've lived that world too, but if you don't step back, I don't feel you're going to be uh, a, a great leader. And one of the criticisms that I read in the book was that Hitler was so, he was so 24-7, and he never stuck back. I mean, he was an evil guy, but still, it's just, it's kind of a contrast. Right, right, totally. And by the way, we will link the books that you mentioned. Uh, they're totally brilliant. I want to read them all now. Uh, we'll link them in show notes below the episode so anybody can go in and grab them. Uh, I'll have a link to the Amazon. Uh, Bob, uh, before I la ask my last question, where's everybody can find you online? 
Well, hey, I'm a regular uh, journalist now, so I write for GreenBiz, so you can find my byline at uh, greenbiz.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, pretty active, uh, at Bob Langert. And I have my own website, boblangert.com. And, uh, pardon me? No, I'm just saying it's great, and I'll have, I'll have it all in the show notes, too, so everybody can, can find it. And my book, my book is, uh, I think, for anybody that wants to kind of understand the inside of a, a company in a way that's kind of a... I wrote the book to be a page-turner. So I, I wanted to not, not, not have a... T- I, in all my reading, I've never really read much within the corporate sector about what real life is like inside a company. Mm-hmm. It tends to, to be either dry, academic, and, uh, or it could even be sensational. But uh, I lived through so many interesting things that I wanted to make this one uh, for people in business that want to learn about how to deal with uh, barriers and change and uh, how to make change happen, work with critics. Uh, uh, I put it all out there. So uh, I hope that's worth a read as well. Yeah, and by the way, everybody who is listening to the show, go check out the book, uh, the book that Bob uh, wrote, The Battle to Do Good. It's amazing. It's really, really interesting how McDonald's operates behind the scenes. We'll have a link to that as well. I found it to be really fascinating. Bob, last question. What impact would you like to have on the world? Well, I, I've always wanted to make a world a better place. So uh, at this stage in my life, and I feel pretty good that I've been able to do that. So I... Right now, my main mission is to really uh, help the world a better place. I'm really trying to spend more time with younger uh, people and uh, try to be more of a, a mentor and try to help people maybe learn things quicker than I did. Because uh, I think to be a leader in today's world, it's, you know, it's, it's coming on strong and people can make an impact at a younger age. So when I take advantage for people that have been around the block like, uh, like I've been. <laughs> That's amazing. No, totally. It's, it's, it's great. And there's so many opportunities to learn now, but the best way to learn is from people like you who've been through that and who, who made these big changes. Uh, but it was I think so. a great interview. Yeah, it's been a great interview, Bob. Thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate the insights. Oh, you're uh, welcome. Great, great stories. Uh, it was great to have you. I appreciate you inviting me on your show. I love it. This was an interview with Bob Langert, episode number 45. Thanks, guys, for listening. Uh, Consider subscribing. I'll have more guests for you coming very soon with some amazing stories, and I'll be doing more video interviews as well. You can always send me an email or message me directly on LinkedIn with ideas how I can improve the show or uh, who I should be interviewing next. Next. Thanks, guys, for listening. See you in the next one.